0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me to about the middle of the Bible, the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at uh, Psalm 120 today. As you're doing that, uh, I have a quiz for you. It's only one question long. Do you like music? I love music. Do you have a favorite song? you have Do you have, a, do you have a, a style of music or a playlist that when you do chores around the house or you're riding in your garden tractor that you just have a certain soundtrack playing? Well, I used to be a, a DJ. And so if you look at my music collection, it's fairly eclectic. I have just a little bit of everything. I, I grew up and I, I, I play the French horn. And so all the way through college, I played in the orchestras. And so I've I got a pretty good classical music library that I love listening to. But then, you know, you don't really play classical music for people trying to roller skate these days. And so, you know, I've got a little bit of everything. One thing that I like to do, being a DJ, is I like to organize the tunes. So when our family goes somewhere, um, I like to create a soundtrack. Uh, The old-fashioned way was, you know what this is? This is a cassette tape. Some of you youngsters, these still do exist, it's just hard to find things to play them on. In fact, when I was interviewing here, I asked just for some samples of your worship services, and they mailed me a tape like this. (laughs) I had to go out to my car to listen to it. (laughs) So in the old-fashioned days, the olden days when, you know, when I was younger and wanting to make a soundtrack for our family vacation, I'd have to line up the songs and record them one at a time and then you know, put the pencil in and twist it back just so there's no break in the music. I think my record is there was a 14-hour car trip that we went that we never heard the same song twice. I had a case of tapes to you know, keep plugging in. Well, these days, it's a whole lot easier to create a mixtape And a soundtrack because everything's digital and you have mp3 files and and so all you do is drag and drop and push play and and you're good to go Uh, i was thinking about this whole arrangement of of music and and just the fact that music gets inside us it moves us and and as i was reading um, in preparation for the summer worship series uh, this whole idea of the mixtape, this soundtrack, kept recurring. And so the new series that we're launching today is Tunes for the Trail, Psalms that Take You Higher. Now, it's a series on the Psalms of Ascent, or the Shere HaMaloth, if you want the Hebrew word for it. There's 15 songs in the, in the middle, uh, towards the end, actually, of, of the book of Psalms. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent; these songs for the journey are, are numbered 120 through 134 in in the Psalms in, in your Bible, and they're all marked as songs of ascent, Shere Hamaloth. Now, these songs, just to give you a little background on why they're in our Bible, and where did they come from, these were songs that were likely sung by uh, Hebrew pilgrims who were making the journey to Jerusalem. They did that three times a year for the major religious worship festivals. And so as they would go, this was their mixtape. These were the songs that they would sing along their journey up to Jerusalem. And when we read in our Bibles that the people went up to Jerusalem, it was literal. Jerusalem is the highest elevation uh, city in Palestine. So literally from any point around the countryside, when you left to go to Jerusalem, you had to go up to Jerusalem. So when you read that in your Bible, the the authors may be talking very literally. Hey, I'm going up to Jerusalem. Yeah, it's a long journey. I got to climb up. In fact, on the front of your bulletin, there's a picture behind the title uh, I took that picture while we were away uh, just a couple weeks ago. It was in the, taken in the grand canyon it 's on the south kaibab trail and to get to get a good perspective on the Grand Canyon, you have to get down in it and One of the ways to get down in it is to go down the south kaibab trail and it 's a series of switchbacks down a, a pretty sheer cliff face like this, and you just go back and forth, and, and, and pretty soon, it's pretty easy to go down. You know, you're several hundred feet down in elevation. And you got to be careful, because if you don't want to have too much of a climb, you got to keep looking back like, oh, I got to go way back up there. I'll back up those switchbacks. And so, I just thought that it was a, a good reminder for us that, that when we talk about going to Jerusalem, we're talking about a literal, literal physical journey that these people had in climbing and elevation to get to Jerusalem. But it's not just literal. It's also uh, metaphorical. It, this, is a, this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, is, uh, it kind of acted out a life living upward toward God. Each step along the way was, uh, was another step towards maturity in faith. So you have a literal climb up to Jerusalem, but it's also a metaphorical picture of the life of a Christian, the life of a believer, one who lives their life in an upward fashion towards God. For us, living the the Christian life is really a faith journey. Christians are people who are moving somewhere. We live our lives going somewhere. We are moving towards God in our relationship. And our path, the path that we have chosen, is called the way. And the way is the path of Jesus. It's, see, it's not just about our final destination. It's really about the journey along the way. The pit stops, the road construction, the detours, all of that stuff is part of the Christian journey. And these songs, these tunes for the trail, if you will, are songs for those who follow Jesus. They're they're our traveling music. They're they're songs that describe elements uh, that are common to all of those who travel this way. Uh, They're real-life examples. They they reflect the concerns and circumstances of everyday life. And one thing that we want to do in presenting is to keep it real, right? Right? to be able to connect these ancient words with our present-day reality. And these songs help us do that in our journey. So each week in this eight-week series, I've kind of developed a question that we'll pose that we'll try and answer. And so the question that we'll attempt to work on today is, how do we live in a world full of lies and malice? Good question to ask. I'm looking forward to the answer. Would you stand with me as as we read this first song on our mixtape? Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is our song it's the word of the lord we say thanks be to god you can be seated i'll be honest as a dj if i was making the soundtrack for the spiritual journey this is not where i would begin it's not the right song I'd pick, I'd pick one completely different than the one that's been given to us. See, when, I, when our family goes on a journey, when, when we go on vacation, there's lots of anticipation. There's lots of excitement that builds about getting away and, and being together and going to see things and, and just relaxing and, and having fun and, and doing all sorts of stuff. And, and, and when, you get, when you get to the day that you leave, it's especially exciting I mean, you get everybody in the car, it's all packed, and you can't see out the back window, but it's a day of, full of excitement, and here we go, and you got fresh coffee and everything, and, and usually the first day, you can put a pretty aggressive goal on the mileage that you want to get in, because everybody's excited, and the car ride just zips by, right? That's how my family operates. We're, we just get excited, and that first day is glorious, it's a happy time. But when I look at this song, and I look at this place that we are given to begin here, it's not a beautiful song. It's, uh, it's not a happy song. It doesn't grip me with excitement. It's uh, harsh, really, when you read it and you let it sink in. It's kind of a downer way to start getting away. It's kind of like uh, a couple of weeks ago when, when we left for a few days, um, we had packed the van the night before. We had the plan on when we were going to get up, who was going to push start on the coffee machine. We knew where we were going to stop first. We had everything all set to go, so we get Out in the van, we're in the garage, open up that door. I put the key in the ignition. Click, 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 click. Dead battery. What a way to start a vacation, right? Can't even get the car out of the garage. So push it out, we jump it, and then we get on our way. But that's not how you begin some time away. That that's not how you start a vacation. All that excitement and anticipation builds, and then to have it go click, click, click that's kind of like this song, you, you know, we're excited about this spiritual journey, this place that we're going, we're living life upward towards God, and then this song is like putting the key in the ignition and getting a click, click, click. Hmm. Look at it. It's a song that starts, it says, in my distress, that's how it starts. What's the last word of the psalm? War. Starts in distress, ends in war. But if you think about it, that's not an inaccurate way to describe our world. If you look around, if you flip on the news, if you read the newspaper, if you surf to your favorite news outlet online, there's people who are warring with each other all over the place. There's turmoil and hostility. People are at each other's throats all over the place. We're constantly fighting with one another. And when we find that we're in the middle of all of these problems... Our world offers the quick fix, the instant solution. We want to snap our fingers and be done with all of the hostility and move on and have a peace conference and, and then everything will be all nicey-nice again. Well, how long does that last? It doesn't last very long, does it? As soon as the instant fix wears off, things degenerate back into chaos, don't they? The world is full of selfish people who are looking out for themselves and, and their own agenda. And they'll do about anything to get their own agenda. They'll beat people into submission, verbally, physically, you name it. It's my agenda. I'm going to pursue it because I must be right. See, at some point, though, we finally figure out that the world is full of lies, that the world will not get any better on its own that people aren't likely to drift towards peace. Things aren't really okay just as they are. And when we get fed up with how things are, and we recognize our own helplessness in trying to change things on our own, perhaps we'll be motivated to move in a different direction. When we're sick and tired of the lies and the malice in the world, we're confronted with a decision. On our journey, we get to a place, we call it a fork in the road. There's two choices to make. There's the way that the world says to go, success, power, prestige, money. They do a really good job at selling that. Yeah, you know, there'll be, it'll be rocky and turmoil, but there's those instant fixes, and we keep buying into that lie. So we get to this fork in the road and the world does a really good job of selling us on let's go this direction but the other choice is the way of jesus which way are you going to go psalm 120 puts us at that crossroads jeremiah he wrote chapter 6 verse 16 and in his book he says stand at the crossroads and look Ask where the good way is and walk in it. Jesus said, John fourteen six. he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm the only way that you're going to be able to take to get to God. So when life puts us at this crossroads, Jeremiah says, ask, which is the right direction. Jesus says, listen to me. I, I am that way that Jeremiah was talking about. Go this way. But the world tells us that's the wrong way. Now, you, you should just pursue it. The world will get better on its own. So, this psalm puts us right there at the fork in the road, confronts us with a decision. And, and the first step towards God is a step away from all of the lies in the world. Psalm 120 is the very beginning of our journey. It forces us to choose. Eugene Peterson says of Psalm 120, he says it's a turning point, marking the transition from a dreamy nostalgia, the world, for a better life, to a rugged pilgrimage of discipleship in faith. And this turning point, we have a label for that, a word for it it's called repentance to turn around and follow Jesus instead of following the ways of the world. Now when we look at specifically at this particular song generally speaking the psalmist identifies the lies and the malice uh, in the world but but he speaks to it in a very personal way. In general he identifies uh, th- this tenor in the world, this mood in the world, this activity in the world of, that it's going to degenerate to lies and malice and hostility and, and destruction. But he talks about it in a really personal way, and that's really what I want to focus on for a few minutes this morning. Uh, there's another question in the quiz. I forgot. There's two questions. Uh, has anyone ever said anything negative about you? It's okay you can raise your hand has anybody ever lied about you has anybody ever gossiped about you has anybody ever called you a name been mean to you i've had my hand in the hair a whole long time um, by the hands and the nodding of your heads i know you understand the pain that the psalmist puts his finger on in this psalm. people can be mean People can be just downright nasty. Kids are especially good at it. Um, Kids are really good at being cruel to one another and and calling each other names, lashing out at other people to make themselves feel better. Um, I may have told you this before. I've worn glasses since I was five years old. And so as a glasses wearer, uh, there's some other of my peeps out here, you can identify with me. It makes you an easy target for comments like nerd, geek, and the most original one, four eyes, to which, you know, the response is four eyes are better than two. I mean, if that's all you got, um, you're in trouble. But then, you know, junior high came along, and um, as my physique was developing, my, my ears were a little advanced from the rest of my body, leaving me an open target for comments like big ears and, you know, you can fill in the blank for the rest of them. And, and I was called a chicken a lot. Now, that's an easy one when your last name is Bach! Bach! <laughs> Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is the biggest lie that we feed our children. Right? I mean, those are fun. They're mean-spirited. But, you know, they're, they're not uh, long-lasting, deeply inflicted wounds most of the time. We can laugh at those, and, and I think I'm over most of them. Uh, I'm still in therapy on the last one. But um, <laughs> I don't want to change my last name. because It's a strong name. it's not just kids who insult each other and tear each other down. Uh, As we age, our name-calling becomes a little bit more sophisticated, doesn't it? Our vocabularies are larger, and we become more calculating and devious in the ways in which we Name call, the ways in which we tear other people down. See, we are told that the people in this particular psalm are nasty. They're deceitful, they're malicious, and being malicious is, is essentially that they speak words with the intent to harm. We don't know exactly what they said, but we can gather that it was untrue, that it was mean spirited, and that it inflicted a lot of pain in this psalmist. The psalmist says in, in verse 1 I'm in distress. And that word distress right there means a tight, uh, narrow, confined place like a closet or a box or a, a crevice. It restricts your movement. He feels like he is trapped by these words that are spoken about him. When somebody lies about you, when, when you, you, you begin to feel like you are trapped, and, and when you feel like you're trapped, you begin to shut down, and you become paralyzed from acting because of what somebody else has said about you. You feel locked away. You feel like you're put in your place and you're stuck. You feel like anything you do to try and get out of this place is now going to be interpreted in light of what these other people have said about you. It's a confining place. Things like, oh, he's a cheat. Oh, she's the jealous type. I mean, how do you get out of those? When you begin to act, you go around thinking, oh, I wonder if, I wonder if my activity here is just going to confirm that, or well, people lie about you when they slander you, when they gossip about you, puts you in this tight place, and you feel trapped. It also makes you feel like you've been shot. In verses 2 and 3, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. The, the word deceit there gives the sense of, of shooting. It feels like you're in the line of fire. A couple months ago, I had the opportunity to go on a, a, a district leadership retreat for our zones i'm one of the zone leaders and 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 uh, pastor jerry got all of us together and, and we had some conversation this was up at uh, island lake where our senior high students are going to go for a camp in in a couple weeks and and so we had good conversation and he always likes to close with a team building exercise and this year the team building exercise was we got to play paintball. <clears throat> So there were eight of us who suited up to play paintball, and we get out to the arena, and the referee splits us into two teams, and, and the first challenge is uh, we just get put out into this arena that has you know, old tires and, and little half walls and really tall grass, and you know, we, we each get a side, and, and the idea is when he blows the whistle that we, just, we move around, and we try and take the other opponent out. And so the first team who gets the other team out is the winner. So we get through game one that was that was exhilarating it was it was awesome Uh, game two the referee says hey who wants to play last man standing i want to do that i'm in now what is it (laughs) maybe i should have answered the question after i knew what it was last man standing he says okay team one you line up right here Down in the trench, behind the... No, just up on top, right here. Okay. Team number two, about 50 yards down the field, he has us line up, so we're there facing one another with fully armed paintball markers. And he says, okay, we're going to alternate shots back and forth. So do we get to hide? No. You stand there and take it. Oh, okay. So... One team would take a shot. The other team, if, if, if you hit, then that person was out of the game. Then the other team would take one shot, and you just alternate back and forth. And so the first round of, of game number two here, n- nobody hit anybody. And, and so we're all standing still. So then he says, okay, take one giant step forward. So until you're close enough to be in range... You just keep moving towards each other and then alternating shots. It hurts when you get stung with a paintball. And the idea with last man standing is you take dead aim. Your intent is to take the other team out because you do not want to get hit with one of those paintballs. See, the lying words, the deceitful words, are exactly like that. They, they are words with intent to kill. They are words with the intent to harm. We fling them at other people to take them down. That's what being malicious is. That's what these words are talking about in this psalm. Lies, slander, gossip, words used to hurt, to diminish, or insult. I had a friend... And that this, this story is, um, well, it gets me every time. Because it happens in the context of a church. And you would hope and you pray that the church would be a safe place for people, where, where words of hate and hurt, words that are flung at somebody else to take them out, would not exist. But then you realize that we're all humans. We're all at various points in our faith journey. And that sometimes some of the hostility of the world is going to creep into the walls of the church. And it's disappointing every time you see it. Uh, My friend, he had had grown up in a congregation. and, And... participated in kids ministries and youth ministry and well he graduated high school and and went off to college and got his degree and and his idea was to move back home to move back to the community where he grew up to re-engage in the church participate in leadership wherever he could uh to to give back to those who had invested so much in his life growing up. But when he came back, he was met with a lot of resistance. Um, People, some people, I should say, they they didn't like his style. They didn't like the way in which he was learning to lead. He was fresh out of college, still maturing, as a person, as a Christian, looking for an environment that may come alongside and help him get better. But what he found was a group of people who began to talk behind his back, a group of people who just started speaking evil about him, words that hurt, deep down wounds that were inflicted, People would speak words and and throw them around like darts that were carefully aimed to take him out, undermining gossip, mean-spirited complaints and criticisms. I mean, and these are from people that you would expect to be adult, mature Christians. Disappointing. It's sad. It, It got so difficult, he felt like he was in such a trap that there was no movement for him at all that he ended up leaving the church. And the sad thing is those who were throwing those darts seemed like they cheered about it. See, lies, gossip, Mean-spirited critique and criticism subverts life. Deceit builds up anxiety in other people. It weighs their soul down. It makes them feel insecure, and, and it damages their soul. When you hurt people with words... Or when you have been hurt by other people's words, it really feels like you've been shot. See, we're, the Bible teaches that that we're to build one another up in love. First Thessalonians five eleven encourage one another, build each other up, and in the words of Paul to the church in, in Ephesus, chapter four. Uh, starting in verse 29, he says, "'Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear.'" He goes on, "'In the middle of this conversation,' about how we communicate with one another, how we treat one another, how we are to build one another up in love, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There's something that moves the heart of God when we speak negative about other people. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, you know this one. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen? You may have wounds like my friend. You may have caused wounds like my friend had. Maybe it's time to make amends, to make that right. So when I look at this particular psalm and I think about my initial statement that I don't know as if I would start here Maybe this is a good place to start after all. Perhaps we need to get rid of the lies and and start journeying towards the truth about ourselves in relation to God. The psalmist, he says, deliver me, O Lord. He looks to God for freedom from the distress that other people put him in. And as we look at this psalm, there are some things that the psalmist identifies for us to help us deal with this kind of distress. The first thing, if you, if you still are open to Psalm 120, in, in verse 1, the first thing is to pray about it. Verse 1, he says, I called to the Lord. He didn't go to his BFF. For those of you who don't know, that's the best friend. He didn't go to his best friend. He didn't go to his mommy. He didn't go to his teacher and say, you know what so-and-so said about me? He went to God first. He went to God in prayer. So, the first, the first thing we learn from this is that when other people attack us, we take it to God in prayer. Let Him help you calm down. It's like counting to 10 before you respond. Breathe in the presence of God. Rest in His presence and, and recognize and remember what God thinks about you. See, when we are hurt, When we are wounded, our our emotions are raw, and and they may lead us to repay evil with evil. See, it takes incredible, incredible discipline and strength to break the cycle of gossip, to tame our tongues. Our brother James, we read it in our core guide devotionals from this last week. James says that our tongues are like fire. Our tongues are like fire that are set on fire in hell and can set the course Of our entire life on fire. Have you ever said anything you regretted? Yeah. It's like lighting the match and setting some of the course of your life on fire. Charles Spurgeon, he says of an unbridled tongue, he calls it a vehiculum diaboli. It's Latin for the chariot of the devil. Your tongue can set things on fire and inflict wounds on other people but it also damages yourself in the process. So the first thing is to pray about it. Turn to God first. Tell Him. I know it's easy to say and it's hard to do. It it takes practice because it's really difficult to repeat bad things that other people have said about you. If somebody says something negative about me, I'd much rather bury it sometimes. I don't even want to speak it on my own lips. I don't even want to tell it to God because that means I have to acknowledge what somebody else says said about me, but let it out. Don't bury it deep in your soul. If you don't let it out, it'll fester. It turns to bitterness. It turns to anger. We begin to feel distressed and trapped, just like the psalmist. So the first thing is to pray. Give it to God. You'll find healing. The psalmist reports that God answered him, which helps build our confidence in the fact that He will deliver us. The second thing is, when you go to God, be honest with Him. Verses 3 and 4. Some, some people read verses 3 and 4 and, and, and read and interpret these verses uh, as a prophecy of, of God's judgment. In other words, the psalmist is spelling out exactly how God is going to punish those who inflict pain through their words on other people. What shall be given you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Verse 4, a warrior's sharp arrows. So they read it as, God will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows. God will punish you by heaping glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, we don't know much about broom trees, but it's a really hard wood, and they would make charcoal out of the broom tree. It burns really, really hot, and it burns really, really long. So the psalmist is saying, God's going to get you with arrows and really hot coals. Some people uh, read these verses as coming deep down from within the psalmist's thoughts and and feelings from his core. uh, Kind of a, a, a way of saying, the psalmist wants to see what comes around, goes around, come to life. And I think it's okay for us to read this as the psalmist's deep desire. It's like the psalmist is saying, giving permission, Go get them, God. Sick them. Hit them with arrows. Hit them with hot coals. Make them hurt for the ways that they have hurt me. See, this is the raw emotion of this psalmist that's just bubbling up to the surface in his prayer. There's this deep desire in in his core for harm to come upon the enemy. He's still learning the lesson about uh, love your enemy and pray for those who hurt you. He's still on his journey here. See, these words of the song are confessional. He's being completely honest before God. So when you're honest with God, let your darkest, your deepest thoughts surface in the presence and in conversation with God because he can handle them. He knows what to do with them. The lies the lies that people speak about you uh, become earworm. You know what an earworm is? It's one of those songs Uh, that gets stuck in your head and you can't get it out, so it plays over and over and over. And it's usually some silly little tune that you don't like. becomes an earworm. Well, what people say about you becomes like an earworm. But Psalm 120 is a song that we learn to sing on our faith journey to break this cycle of negativity. See, all the nasty stuff is given to God for Him to deal with. You can be honest with God third thing that we get from from the psalmist is the recognition that we are on a journey. A recognition that we're on a journey. This prayer is not a a one-time song. You don't sing it once and everything is fixed. It's a song that the Hebrews sung at least three times a year as they were on their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. At least three times of the year, they had to come back to step one. It's a journey. It's one that we sing over and over again, because life is going to continually confront you with opportunities to practice. The Christian walk is a process of sanctification, becoming more and more Christ-like through the power of, of the Holy Spirit. We're on this pilgrimage towards perfection. There's victory that is to come. Christ has already won that victory. But right now, right now we live in the in-between. Right now we live after Jesus' resurrection and before his return. So we are kind of in that time in-between, learning how to live upward towards God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Recognize that it's a journey. And step one is choosing way of truth over and over and over again this psalm ends in a really curious way for for all the progress that the psalmist seems to have made in his spiritual walk look at verse 5 he says woe is me he's not over his pain woe is me Progress has been made, but there's still an open wound that's healing up. He's moving in the right direction, but he recognizes that he still lives in a world that's full of hate. He still lives in a world that's full of malice and chaos amongst the people who want to take him out. The psalmist feels the anguish of this alienation. He feels the isolation that he's in, and he feels this perpetual conflict that he has with the world. Verse 5, he says, I sojourn in Meshach. I dwell among the tents of kedar Well, Meshach and Kedar, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Meshach is uh, north of Israel, up along the coast of the Black Sea. It's uh, modern-day Turkey, I think. And uh, Qadar is, uh, refers to a Bedouin tribe that, that uh, just traveled around in southeast of Israel in, in Arabia. And what he's trying to say is that that the, the image that the Israelites had of people in Meshech and the people of Qadar were that they were barbaric, that they were hostile, that they were treacherous people. And, and and so, what the psalmist is trying to say is that the enemies that surrounded him, the enemies that were attacking him, uh, were like these treacherous barbarians in these distant, far off regions. But there is progress. Verse seven. I. I am for peace. Literally, the Hebrew there says, "I shalom, I peace." Not I feel peace. I am peace. I shalom. And and peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace here is is the the wholeness, the wellness, the the rightness of of living in God's presence. He's moved from wanting God to go get him with with arrows and and hot coals to being one who wants to bring peace, the one who wants to seek peace. He's realized the the peace that God brought him. We can realize the peace that God brings us. So even when we experience those bumps and the turns and the potholes and and the treacherous mountain passes and the bad weather and, and the detours and the road construction on our own journeys, we can know that God is there to see us through. Even in the middle of hostility, the psalmist is now leaving the results up to God. It's in your hands, God. I shalom, but they, they want war. They are set on turmoil and destruction, but I want your peace. I want your will to be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. He recognizes that his circumstances might not change. But his outlook, his outlook can. I ran across this quote. I don't, I don't know who to attribute it to because it, was, uh, it wasn't listed on the place that I read it. It says, Sometimes the Lord calms the storm. Sometimes he lets the storm rage and calms his child. A true statement? See, the, soul, the, the psalmist here, no longer defined by the lies of other people, but by the truth of what God says about him. And he's still on a journey, but he's chosen the way of truth. His experience now is shaped by peace, wholeness of life lived in relation to God and then to other people. As we close this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and lead us in a closing song. See, God can and He does use the distress and difficulty that we face to to draw us closer to Him. So my encouragement to you would be to keep your eyes focused on the prize of living in eternal glory with God. Our final rescue is out there. It is coming. We eagerly await Jesus to come back. We await our Savior to return. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we live in exile in this world. And we are called as people who follow the way to live lives that are radically different than those of us around us. And this song that we start off with, this first tune for the trail, helps us to gain some perspective. It helps us to shed the image that other, might, other people might be projecting on us and move, move into the peace that comes in knowing and hearing from God what he speaks about us. People of God said, Amen. Would you